Hello and welcome to the first episode of Advocates, the place where you get to hear from the very best in our business. We are all from Malaysia and therefore you find that we have a liberal sprinkling of advocates from Malaysia in this first season, but we have as well talent from across the world. To kick off season 1, we are very very lucky to have uh, Tanshri Tommy Thomas. Tommy has been for four decades a barrister uh, at the Malaysian bar. He is a commercial and constitutional lawyer. He was also uh, attorney general for 2 years and ended his term in February of 2020. Tommy is the first attorney general in Malaysia to have level charges against an ex prime minister. But most important for us on advocates Tommy is an engaging and straightforward answer of questions and we've had a wonderful session with him and we hope you're going to enjoy it as well. Tommy, welcome Razlan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, thanks Gups. Great pleasure. Okay, Tommy, let's let's begin. Tell us a little bit about your family, where they're from, uh, and what your mum and dad did. Yes, both my parents from Kerala in southwest India. My my dad came across just before the Second World War for employment purposes in in 1939. Both India and Malaya were British colonies. It was pretty easy to move from one place to the other. So he came and immediately got a job in the public works department as a technical assistant and remained there throughout his career. and he was in malaya during the japanese occupation and then in 1950 he went back to kerala to marry my mum so it was an arranged marriage and my mum became an academic she was professor at the university of malaya so basically a, a middle class family and i i was the eldest born in 1952 i've got one brother and one sister so a very middle class family right what do your brother and uh, and sister do Well, they they both retired now. <laughs> they they are both at home, and, and and to be fair, my sister didn't work that long because she was married and quite happy to be a homemaker. They have two children, and so she didn't work that long. And uh, did either of them do law? No, 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 neither. And what did your mum teach at, at university? Uh, she taught uh, parasitology. That's which will be very relevant today in COVID because she was interested in mosquitoes and malaria. and uh, try to prevent the spread of malaria and other uh, mosquito uh, driven uh, diseases so she was in the university of malaya as a, as a professor so um, in terms of obviously with your mother as a as a professor was education a very big part of your of your youth ah uh, yes absolutely uh, i mean in the sense that they encouraged me and uh, i think from very young i was taught to read and encouraged to read and then i went to kindergarten very early on but the good thing about my parents for fa- for families in the 1950s and 60s they were quite unusual in that they never pushed me or the or, or my brother and sister to do particularly well in school there was no pressure to do be to be the top of the class or to do well, well. and none of us were we were pretty okay, okay. Well, in my case i was certainly naughty in school and didn't do terribly well it's So tell us a little bit about your naughtiness in school. I mean you were at Pasar Road uh, English School and then you went on to uh, VI. Why those schools first? The, my parents wanted me to get to the VI because in the late 50s the Victoria Institution was the leading uh, school in Kuala Lumpur and 
and could take on Raffles in Singapore and Penang Free School. So it was without doubt the top school. Uh, and uh, in order to get to the Victorian institution, you had to go to the feeder schools of Pasar Road or Bath Road. This, I'm talking about the 50s and 60s. And by chance, we, my dad's quarters, public the PW quarters was in Pasar Road. So for those reasons, I got, went to Pasar Road. And that was uh, for five years. And then six, five, five, five and a half, six years in the, in the, in the, in the BI. Right. Now, I know, but you, I'm going to ask you, of course, now why you said you were naughty at school and um, give us a couple of incidents. Well, I think what my school days and I think all my friends would say is I, I, we were full of mischief. The school was fun. School was absolute fun, full of mischief and very little learning. Uh, just in minimum learning to pass whatever exam <laughs> you had to. It was in front of you. So if it was standard six, the, exam, the idea was to pass standard six and do well enough to get to the VI, which, and then form three to pass LCE. I think when it came to the O levels, it was a bit more serious. But yeah, it was, and, and, I, and I tried to play a lot of games. I wasn't particularly uh, gifted or talented. A lot of my classmates were much better, but I ran around in, in the football pitch and tried to feel at cricket and play a bit of rugby. Not, not particularly good in any of those, but there you are. More effort and energy. You still have an abiding interest in rugby. And some of the games, I mean, athletics and football and whatever, but yeah, most in rugby. In rugby. Now, just looking at, uh, at, at your CV, you know, you went, um, you obviously did well enough for your O-levels and your, and your A-levels that you, that you went to the UK to, to, to study law. And earlier I asked you whether, you know, your siblings had studied law. Were there any other members of your family that um, had studied law before you, your uncles, aunts or cousins? Well, not close, but according to my mother, one of her uncles, whom she herself had not seen, had done law in Kerala in the, in the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century, but she herself did not see the uncle. So the, I, I would say, no, we were much more science-based. Right. My dad was mathematics and engineering. My ah. mom was natural sciences. So nobody in the arts field. So why did you gravitate to law? Well, I, I, I started by saying that I was terrible in, in the natural sciences and mathematics. I was really hopeless uh, and had no interest and the teachers didn't inspire me and whatever. So I was... So the sciences were out. And actually, my favorite subjects in school were history and the English language. Not literature. I didn't particularly like literature, but I liked the English language and history. And so I wanted to be an, a historian. And then I saw Perry Mason. So Perry Mason <laughs> changed my life. <laughs> when we had television in, in 1964, 65, and Perry Mason was the star TV, Raymond Burr. And so I said, okay. And I came to school. I remember I came to school and announced in Form 2 that I'm going to be a lawyer, a trial lawyer. So everybody said, what are, what are you talking about? So I, all my friends would say I was the first person in our group knew what his career was going to be. And that was, that was in Form 2. Sure, you're not the last person to be inspired by Perry Mason either. That's right, yeah, yeah. But what was it about Perry Mason that made you go, this is, this is what I want to do? Well, I thought it's quite interesting. And he, of course, he was defense counsel, if I remember. He was always defending. So I thought, okay, and, and I did not know anything about criminal or civil law or whatever. It just seemed quite interesting. Yeah, I, I get, and I guess just cross, I mean, asking, that I did not know it's cross-examination. It was asking questions, the witnesses, the whole court drama was, was good. So I guess, I guess it would be Having, you know, I mean, I, I practiced uh, with you. I practiced on the other side. Would one of the things that attracted you be that sort of forensic process of establishing facts? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. But that, that I won't say is because of Perry Mason, because it is just it is more because of the lawyers I worked with who, who inspired me. But uh, yeah, I was I was always much more into facts than law. If if a general statement can be made, if 99 percent of lawyers in Malaysia and the world are focused about the law, I am always on the facts. And I always <laughs> say I don't know any, I don't know much law. You tell me the facts, and then I'll roughly figure out the law, not the other way around. So okay. I was very much the facts. Okay. So what were the subjects when at Manchester that interested you? Well, I think the great thing about Manchester at that time was our, f- our faculty was absolutely world-class. We had Professor Harry Street, Street on Torts. He was the, the doyen, he was an intellectual giant. And then we had Professor Bromley. Bromley wrote the family law book. And then we had a lot of young lecturers who, who be- became famous later. Andrew Ashworth was a young criminal law lecturer who became who held the Wynerian professorship in, in Oxford, the preeminent chair uh, in, the, in the Commonwealth. Uh, and then, of course, we had Brenda Hale, who was known as Brenda Hoggart. Uh, she was a young constitutional law lecturer who eventually joined the bench and became Brenda Hale. So we had a, a terrific uh, law faculty of lecturers. The students, of course, I, I mixed with all those who were making noise and going to the pub and drinking and enjoying student life. So, But the lecturers were, very, were absolutely fantastic. Very informative and uh, inspirational. Now, after that, of course, you went. To, you did the bar finals in in the UK because that was the only route to coming back and practicing in Malaysia. Yes, at Middle, Middle Temple. Yes. And you at uh, at Middle at Middle Temple. And I noticed interestingly that after you'd finished your your bar, you went to the LSE and did your masters in uh, international relations. So, what sparked that interest? Well, I, I always knew I was going to go back to Malaysia and practice in the bar. So and and I didn't want to study another law subject. So because that was going to be my destination, I thought, look, I, can I stay on in UK for another year? And my parents said they could afford. So I studied international politics and international relations and all that, which is not law. And the LSC, because actually I wanted to join the LSC when, for law, but I, I didn't get in uh, and I went to Manchester instead. Uh, and so I always harbored ambitions to get to the LSC. And the reason the LSC was because in the late 60s, they were quite notorious for being in the forefront of student of the student movement with Tariq Ali and Robin Blackman and and the 67-68 student movement, which was active in Germany and France and the US. But uh, that was just a short period. By the time I joined the LSE in 1975, it had become pretty conservative with a small C, and I think it remained conservative till today. But it had a burst of it had a burst of student activism in the late 60s. And that sort of obviously you had an interest in politics in wanting to do international relations. That's, is that something that's carried through with you to today? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think I would, I would say I'm, I'm more into politics than into law. So I, I would describe myself as a political lawyer. In that I'm a lawyer who happens to be terribly interested in politics, uh, but without wanting ever to be a politician. And why is that? Oh, well, just they, they have different rules. I mean, there's just um, no honor and there's no principle. And it's just as a general statement, it's pretty difficult to do well in politics if you have strong views and principled views. So I was more interested in studying about it, reading about it, both history, current affairs and politics. And of course, that's something, and I think Rastan will take this up with you later, that you continue to write about as well till very recently. Yes. Okay. Did you, after you finished your bar, you finished your, your, your master's, you mentioned that you were very clear that you were coming back to Malaysia. Did you ever harbour any thoughts of practising in the UK? 
Uh, yes, because most of my friends in Manchester couldn't understand why I was going back, but I didn't really give it a thought. I was happy to come back. So it, it was never a choice. Never a choice. And do you still, I mean, uh, your colleagues from the bar or from Manchester, any of them sort of still in practice in the in the UK or some of them gone onto the bench? No, nobody went to the bench. A few went to the, to the bar. One or two of them were successful QCs. Most of them were solicitors. Right. And I suspect a few are still practicing, but I guess the majority have retired because the major the retirement age normally is about 65 mm-hmm. and all of us have passed that. So I, I suspect that the, the majority have, re- have retired. Having spoken with, about uh, what inspired you to do law, clearly advocacy was the route you wanted to go to. You, you never had a thought of becoming a sort of transactional solicitor or anything like that? No, no, absolutely never. not. And when you came back to Malaysia, you ended up in, in Screen, Screen & Co, as it was uh, then known. How did you end up there? Uh, because uh, VC George was a, was a family friend, and George was then chairman of the bar. And, uh, and remember, in 1975, when I got back, the bar would have been only about 1,500 in Malaya and about 7,800 in KL, compared to, say, about 20,000 today. And so it's a very small bar, and I had lunch with George, and he recommended going to the larger firms, either Shearn or Screen. And then I said, look, he said, do you know anybody? I said, yeah, I know Vinayak and Anandan from Victoria Institution. So he said, yeah, then he said, go to Screen. And so, a, and then George was very, he said, you want to help and telephone? I said, no need. But BC George telephoned John Screen. They're all small, all friends. The real old boy network. Right, right. And of course, uh, you know, for, uh, VC George is a, was a very famous lawyer in his day and then became a, a high court and a, a court of appeal judge in, uh, in Malaysia. So your time in, your time in screen, who's your master then? Uh, Stanley Petty, wonderful Scottish lawyer from, from the University of Edinburgh, great lawyer, from the Faculty of Advocates, because they don't have the bar there, they, they, they don't have the Faculty of Advocates. Michelle, would you like me to ask one or two questions to Tommy, then you can formulate could I just jump ahead, Tommy, to because I've been reading your book, Abuse of Power, which you published in 2016. And of course, in preparation for this, we went through your, your CV as well and the list of your prominent cases which you did, which went on and on and on, right? And one of the things I noticed from those articles you wrote, which is now collected, collated in the book, Abuse of Power, and the fact and your list of cases is this. You must be some sort of a prodigy. I mean, you started arguing cases in the federal court after four years of practice in 1980s, when one of your earliest reported cases in the federal court. You became INSAF editor, I think, in 82, or 81, 82, after about five years in practice. May I ask, how did this happen? How do you get these cases to go and argue with federal court cases as a four-year-old lawyer, so to speak? I mean, you don't get this nowadays, you see. I think the main reason was because it was a small bar. I think that's the main factor. You you really can anybody who is starting practice today or practicing in today's uh, large bar of twenty thousand would find it difficult to uh, understand how lucky we were. So when I was called in seventy six, as I said, there may be there, there could have been about eight hundred in Kuala Lumpur, but those who were going regularly to the court could have been say only three four hundred, and in screen. We were the largest litigation firm. Uh, we had about 10 lawyers uh, going to the courts. So, and Screen had a lot of work. Screen was a popular firm for, for most of the clients. And so I would say 
I was blessed and lucky to be in Screen, which had which received which had fantastic work, and uh, it was a small bar. So that those were factors, and I think uh, so did all my colleagues in Shern and Shuklin and and whatever. That there were any number of young lawyers appearing in the court, so it wasn't unusual at that stage. So when you came back and started to practice in the late 70s, you know, 76 onwards, early 80s, when you start regularly appearing in this, the higher courts, who were the leaders of the bar then? Well, I think uh, this is uh, up to 1980-82, you had Edgar Joseph in criminal law, Shankar also doing criminal law, and both civil, VC George, all the three of them went to the bench. Then we had Robert Chalea, uh, who uh, was the chairman of the bar for many, many years and a very good lawyer. Then there was Yusufi Abdul Kadeh, whom I just missed. Yusufi had a great reputation in the bar, but I never saw him. And then, of course, just a bit earlier was, was D.R. Sinivasagam, who's who passed away very young, and he had a terrific reputation. So most of the lawyers whom I was chatting to when I started were full of praise for David Marshall from Singapore and D.R. Mm-hmm. Sinivasagam, both of whom, unfortunately, I never saw. I never saw them in action. David Marshall was still coming to our courts in Johor. So, and then, of course, there was Lim Kian Chai, and uh, that's I guess, I guess that's about it. That those who, and then in screen, we had Stanley Petty and Peter Mooney. So they would be the, probably the top 10 barristers. Okay. Uh, well, final question before I pass you back to groups is this, Toby. In your acknowledgments to your, in your book, Abuse of Process, which you wrote in 2016, you had this rather incredibly moving tribute you gave to your, to your seniors. Yeah? You said this, if I can quote, I was fortunate to have started practice in Screen & Co., where integrity, professionalism, merit and industry were valued. Stanley Paddy and Peter Mooney were towering personalities, not just in the firm, but in the Malaysian bar. They set remarkably high standards, which none of us could match. James Puticherry's all-around skill and wisdom and John Screen's steadfastness and leadership made Screen & Co. the leading firm in the country. That's really, you know, quite a fantastic tribute that you paid to your seniors. And and this is was after 40 years you've been in practice. So my question is, what is it about them that after 40 years in writing a book, you still felt strongly enough to give to give this sort of tribute? Well, I think they, they shaped and molded me in many ways. I, I think the whole idea of, of legal practice is not cold cases and textbooks and what you study in university. That's the background. They provide first principles. But it's habits and practice customs which you acquire by uh, having good mentors. So I, I was terrifically lucky in having good mentors. So Peter Mooney and Stanley Petty, uh, Peter Mooney argued many cases himself in the Privy Council. He was that level. Stanley didn't, uh, but they were, if they had stayed in Scotland, they were both from the Faculty of Advocates in Scotland. And Peter Mooney was first class student throughout in the University of Glasgow. Uh, they would have been uh, top barristers in, in Scotland and probably on the bench. So I was really lucky in being uh, taught and to be working under them. So they, they give you, so I would watch how they would do, uh, they would be all the time working. They are very, they were very industrious. When I juniored with them, my contribution was really literally zero. So <laughs> there was a case of, of, of Peter Mooney and myself doing a case in court or Stanley Perry and me doing a, co- a case in court. The, the truth was my contribution was Minimal, zero. I, I didn't have to be there. It was all done by them, which is why when I started doing it, I was I learned that. Likewise, John Chadwick, who was a QC, whom I worked with, uh, again, my contribution would be minimal. 
And I, I realized then to do well in the bar, it is a solo career. So till today, when I work with juniors and others, I try and do most of the work. You know, that it is not, and so in other words, I always use the spotting analogy. When you are doing barristering, you are singles, badminton or tennis. You are either Roger Federer or Chong Wei. You, you are, it's not a football team or a rugby team. It's not a committee. Litigation is not a committee work. And I learned that from Stanley and Peter and John Chadwick. That's interesting because if nowadays you see senior advocates coming to court with a battalion full of lawyers and cases are incredibly complicated. There's huge amount of documents reading. When you say for you yourself, it must be a solo task. Yes, because at any one time, there's only one barrister standing up in court for one side, for the plaintiffs or the defendant. You cannot have... So we start with that proposition. You cannot have two barristers standing up simultaneously for the same party. It's only one. And usually the captain. And Malaysian judges are very, very unhappy that they have uh, to listen to two lawyers in a particular case. They much prefer one lawyer. Whoever identifies himself, they want him to stay uh, and do the case. So if you're going to stand up, uh, you, and you must be able to answer the questions from the bench. It's, it, the judges don't like if you're turning back and asking for help uh, or people passing papers around. That doesn't... See, at the end of the day, the judges, uh, counsel's job is to assist the court in arriving at a de decision. That is our role. We are assisting them to make a decision. And I think in Malaysia, that assistance has to come usually from one lawyer and that, that kind of thing. So, so let me just pick up on that, Sandy Paddy and... and Peter Mooney, do you know what brought them from Scotland to Malaya as it was then, as opposed to them staying there and practicing in, in Scotland? I think they were, well, in Stanley Paddy's case, he was a family of the empire. I, uh, in fact, he was born in Sri Lanka, uh, Ceylon, uh, his, and his father was also in the empire. Uh, and Scot don't, you know, don't forget, Sc Scotland provided probably the largest number of people to run the British empire across the globe. So the Paddy's were empire people. And so Stanley wanted to do, uh, the moment he finished, uh, I think he, if I remember, he practiced only one or two years in Perth, uh, in, where he came from Scotland, Perth in Scotland, and then came to Singapore and then quickly to Malaya. In, in Peter Mooney's case, I think he's, if I'm not mistaken, he may have spent some time uh, in Southeast Asia in the Second World War. If I'm not mistaken, he could have been in the Burmese campaign and then liked this part of the oh. world. I like this part of the world. And then uh, after call, uh, he, but Stanley practiced, uh, Peter practiced for uh, two or three years in Edinburgh and then came here. And just hear, hearing your, you know, the, what they taught you, if you could pin one lesson, the one thing that you learned from these two gentlemen and from John Chadwick that you've carried through your career, what would that be? I think just hard work. It's <laughs> just absolute industry, diligence, you know, so as basic as that. And I guess. Uh, honesty and integrity are given for them, for them uh, and is, for, is a given for me on the assumption that honesty and integrity are foundations of the bar, which may be a dangerous assumption to make in Malaysia, but uh, let me say that. <laughs> so once you take that's a given, then it's just sheer hard work. And then the, the other name you mentioned was uh, was John Chadwick. And I think, you know, uh, looking through your list of cases, you're one of the uh, few lawyers who are continuing to practice today who has appeared in the Privy Council. Uh, and I think that was with uh, with John Chadwick. How did you end up working with him? And what was your working relationship like with him? 
Well, uh, what happened was in the in the late seventies, we were acting for screen. We were acting for the uh, Moscow Narodny Bank in Singapore and the official receiver of Hong Kong, who were working jointly to try and recover assets arising from the collapse of the Mossbet group of companies. So the late uh, in the late seventies, the most notorious uh, fraudster was somebody called Amos William Daw, who borrowed hundreds of millions of dollars and misspent it. Does, does that not ring a bell? So I began my career uh, in insolvency. Uh, and uh, the Hong Kong government, because it was, it, I think the, the assets were worth about 100 million ringgit, which is quite large money then. They appointed John Chadwick, a Hong Kong government, because they, were go- they, were, they represented the largest creditors and they had the biggest stake in getting the money back. So they funded the litigation uh, and they got John Chadwick. Uh, and then he came in 1979, uh, 1980, and then worked with Stanley and I. We were Stanley and I were working for the for, for that screen. Right. And what was that experience like in the in the in, in the Privy Council? In terms of, uh, was it different to appearing in courts in Malaysia? And if so, how? I think the in both the both the cases, uh, the the hearing were two days uh, for each appeal, which I think in Malaysia they don't give you that. They may do it in two hours. Uh, you are given two hours, maybe one hour each, or maybe one morning at the maximum. Uh, in the Privy Council, that they asked the barristers how long you want, and I think John John Chadwick said he wanted one hour. In both cases, we were the appellant. He spoke first. So I guess the first difference was the amount of time these five law lords uh, gave to the council. And they hardly interrupted. They are listening with great uh, interest. And then when they interrupt, they always ask penetrating questions and you can tell immediately they're, they're clever minds. But they were very good listeners and they did not trouble the barristers. And the barristers really, on both sides, uh, in one case, we had Michael Beloff on the other side. And the other case, we had Stuart McKinnon and Robert Chalaya. So all the five barristers uh, in the both appeals were not disturbed. And two days was enough. And they, so that would, that was a, a big, big, big difference. Yeah, which is that if you have time, in Malaysia, because they're in a hurry, they, they fix too many cases. Everybody is impatient. So you really just don't never get the a hearing. So we used to tell the, the students, Sufian and Aslan Shah in the 70s were much more approachable to the bar than the subsequent judges. They would listen to us, but never implement it. But do you think that's a function of just the number of cases they, that we have now in courts? Or do you think it's something else that's sort of driving the shortening of this time and well, the number of cases in the Privy Council and the House of Lords are greater or as, as much for them. But of course, I won't comment on today's House of Lords and today's Privy Council because it's well, Supreme Court is 40, 45 years later. I'm talking of the courts in the, in the mid-80s when I was there. There, they had, a, they had a backlog of cases and whatever, but they didn't. It, in other words, a back, backlog of cases, KPI, statistics, all these things did not matter to them. These, those were administrative things. A judge would be insulted in England those days. You would tell him about a case uh, numbers and whatever. His job from 10 o'clock to 5, five o'clock to sit in open court, listen properly, listen patiently, make a decision. If that meant 10,000 cases were waiting, that was not his concern. You have to wait your turn. In Malaysia, there's been an obsession about statistics. Obsession. Detriment of justice. Let me turn now to the areas that you've practiced in your during your time. And 
obviously, I think that the bulk of your of your career has been spent spent doing commercial work, and you know you practiced in in company law and in general commercial commercial work as well. But you've also sort of practiced in industrial law. You've done one of the leading trademark cases in uh, in Malaysia, and you also have a a fairly uh, weighty resume in terms of constitutional law. And you know you wouldn't have thought the two sort of commercial law and constitutional law go together. What drove that interest in in constitutional law? As far as constitutional law is concerned, I think it was in Manchester because we had I had Harry Street, I had Brenda Hale, Brenda Hoggart. I forgot to say Rodney Brazier was there too. Rodney Brazier, who was a leading constitutional. So the the professors were very uh, inspiring. And then the next thing is the great thing about constitutional law is that it you cannot understand constitutional law unless you unless you understand politics and the British the British constitution and any other constitution the politics and the personalities. So you cannot understand the Malaysian constitution unless you know what Tunku was doing or Tun Razak was doing or Tun Mahathir was doing and the government. So it was an interplay of politics, history, and law. Law. And that sort of fused, that fused your, your three areas of, of great interest, right. I guess. That's right. And you've been involved in constitutional law for, for many years. How do you, What state is our constitution in Malaysia over the years, from the times of the, of the 70s to today? How do you describe the development of our constitution in the courts? Well, actually, ter- terribly. This terrible uh, development. But I think what I always say is that it is very lonely and tough to be a constitutional barrister in the courts of Malaysia, which is why we only had 15, 20, 30, very small number interested in the subject. Because uh, from Madeka Day and even Tun Sufian and Yusufi Abdul Kadeh and other greats, they were not terribly friendly in developing constitutional law because constitutional law can only develop if the uh, plaintiff the private litigant, the private individual, or sometimes the company who is always suing the government of the day. The state is always involved in constitutional law. Uh, The state, either the federal government, the state government, or or a governmental agency. And if you look at the statistics now for for a minute, you would see that from a decade till today, 65 years later, the state has probably won 98, 99 times, 98%. Conversely, the plaintiffs have hardly won 5%. So if you talk to any constitutional lawyer, you will say, why am I uh, banging my head in constitutional law when my client always loses? Always loses. So if, if I argued a constitutional case on a Monday, I lose. I go before the same judges in a company law case or a land law case on Tuesday or Wednesday and I win. Let's move on then. So now you've, we've, we've described your areas of practice in company law, in commercial law, industrial, trademark, constitutional law. And of course, as uh, attorney general, general most lately, you've appeared in criminal cases as well, and you've had to, to practice in, in criminal law. Against that backdrop, uh, what do you say to those uh, who advocate a specialization at the bar? Oh, it's very important. Specialization is, is critical. So whether, of course, in, in the criminal jurisdiction, the specialization is not so great. You, I think some criminal lawyers will say we prefer the more, the older crimes of murder, rape, kidnapping, where obviously there's no paperwork, there's nothing. It's just oral testimony of witnesses compared to white collar crimes, which is far more difficult because there's paper trail and forensic accounting. 
So that could be a division in the criminal bar. But in the civil bar, obviously, there's massive diff- the, uh, categories. You could be a family lawyer. You could be industrial fa- employment law. You could be general corporate commercial. And, and even in co- commercial, there'll be sub-specializations. You could be a revenue, intellectual property, or, or whatever, shipping, admiralty. So I would say you have to specialize. So in, in a sense, the in an ideal world, and I think the English bar tries to do that. I don't know whether they still do it, which is you specialize in the first 10, 12 years till you become a QC, and then you 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 broaden and accept all kinds of brief. So you could you could have spent 14 years as a company lawyer getting a silk, and then once you become famous, you say, okay, I will accept constitutional law, I accept a land law, I accept whatever. Then you generalize. Right. right. And has that been your experience as well? I mean, that you start yes. sort of more as a commercial and then it sort of broadened up as yeah. you... But in my case, you... I, I always uh, didn't like specialized being uh, stuck in a category. And uh, so I, I remember I, I enjoyed employment law. I, I loved industrial court work, but for two, three years, and then it got boring because it's not that difficult to master. So once I mastered a subject, I would move on. I, I couldn't be tight, uh, kept in a compartmental type category. My favorite law is statutory interpretation. So I love all the, all the federal constitution. You give me a, a written law, whether it's constitution or any statute, and then I will read it, and then I'll try and understand parliament's intention and all that. I love that, and I don't want any case law. That's quite rather ironic, considering you view yourself as a facts man first, isn't it? And yet, there you go, say the favorite area of the law is statutory interpretation and constitutional law. This basically means reading lots and lots of cases, right? Yeah, but unfortunately, once I've, uh, once you've resolved the facts, you have some idea of the facts, right? then you have to go to the law. Right. You know, it's, it's a, you know, in other words, in my case, it's a, it's a two-step. I, I listen to the client and I, or the document, I get the facts. And then if the facts takes me into the Higher Purchase Act or the Sale of Goods Act or whatever act, then I just, my style is I take the act question of companies and read the act for myself and the provisions. I don't want to read slow. I don't want to read commentary. I read it for myself. To apply it to the facts, I just... So you do it yourself. You're, you're not uh, Horace Rumpel, so to speak, and get the solicitor to read the, the, no, the no. law. <laughs> yeah, let me just dive into that as well and just try to get a, an idea of how you approach these things. Uh, nowadays, when we go to court, we are we're given bundles and bundles and bundles of authorities and what is your approach to that? Is is the scholarship important for every single case that you do? Absolutely not. So I always use the Donahue and Stevenson example. So I, I always say, look, if you are doing a negligence case, which is bread and butter in tort, all you have to do is go back and read Donahue and Stevenson and the major principles and apply it because really it hasn't changed that much. Or if you're doing a company law, you say, okay, you want to go and read Ibrahimi or Salomon and Salomon or what are the leading cases. Or in administrative law, you read Anis Minik, that kind. So I, I just read you, as long as you know the major cases, that's enough. 99% of it is application of it. It's very seldom do you have new law, the next step. That is very rare. In 99% of cases all over the world, is application of settled principles. So you just have to remind the judge, uh, just to remind you, this is negligence. Donahue and say, the judge will say, yeah, I know negligence. You get on with it. Rather than, what's the point of having 100 cases there all over the world which have applied Donahue and Stevenson? 
Let me take you from there and try to understand in a sort of granular fashion the process that you go through. Client walks in the door, as you said, he tells you his story. Take me through that process from there to how you settle the claim for the for the for the client. I break all the rules, so I interrupt all the time, and I tell the clients very quickly. Uh, as you're telling the story, I will interrupt and ask you to speed on or whatever, because some of them can go on and on, <laughs> as you know. Yes. And then I know, and I also tell them I am not writing a single thing, uh, so I just want to listen to your story. You tell me your story, your facts, and then I listen and then I interrupt. And then very quickly, I have some sense of what the problem is. And then I see myself as a problem solver. Client has a problem, I try to solve it. And from that process then to, to you settling a claim, do you have a, a set way of doing that, of drafting a claim? I've not drafted a statement of claim for some time, but um, because most of our work, thanks to the screen introduction, and it carried on in my small firm, about 90% of my work was for plaintiffs. So I was, very, I was a very plaintiff lawyer which means statement of claim, you know. And so, yeah, and the answer is just, I enjoyed drafting. I, I read the documents and drafted myself. I enjoyed it, settling pleadings. And did you have a, a particular process in, in doing that? Not particularly. You have a, you just read the story. Yeah, well, I guess anything I, anything I read and all, I like, to, I like to have it in a chronological fashion. It always begin with the beginning. Begin with Garden of Eden. Yeah. A, a to Z rather than, you know, don't go into the middle, always from the beginning. And then it flows. And flows, yes, correct. So let, let, let's now turn to sort of preparation and sort of the areas of lawyering. Let's look at areas of lawyering uh, first. I mean, you've got trial work, you've got cross-examination, then you've got you know submissions, appellate work. What did you enjoy the most? Oh, trials. I enjoyed trials and I enjoyed cross-examination. And submissions, if you've, if you've got a, a good bench, a clever bench, you know, who, who responds, you know, which, because otherwise if you're just reading or submitting and the bench is silent, uh, that's a problem because you really don't know whether they are following. You don't want them to be a sphinx. You want them to comment, you know, and then it doesn't matter what questions they ask you, then you know where they, what they're thinking. Uh, so yeah, submissions, submissions and uh, cross-examination. So let me let me just come to, come down to the uh, to the cross examination part. And I mean, I know in commercial work, I mean, in cases that we've done, we've had you know 30, 40 volumes of uh, of documents in in some of those cases. What is the first step for you in preparing uh, your cross examination? The last few years, maybe the last ten years, all the civil trials that I've done, I've been lucky. I've got good juniors who, are, in fact, co counsel, and I we split the work from the early on. I, I say to my counsel, my co counsel, you are doing examin uh, the plaintiff's part, all the examination in chief. But of course, it's made worse witness statements and all that. I've got no uh, patience for all those things. So I say from the beginning, I am doing cross examination. So, uh, and of course, that means you have more time because you know your, your cross examination of the defendant comes much later. So once you divide the work that way then it's much easier. And what I do is I, I very quickly browse through all the bundles to make sure I want, I read, I can quickly decide what documents are important, what is not, try and do it in a chronological order, and then read the documents, have my own comments. And then finally, write down the questions. I, I old-fashioned way, you write down the questions. Oh, you see, you actually write down every question that, you, that, you, that you're going to ask. Yes. Wow. Yes. Okay. That's interesting. Now that the people all type it out, of course, I know people use the, the WP, but I am still old-fashioned and handwrite it. So it, take, it takes a long time, but it doesn't matter because, you know, I can charge a big bill and it's, uh, it's worth it, you know. Do you actually write down specifically the questions or it's more just areas of cross-examination? No, questions, questions. Oh, really? Eh? Absolute questions, yeah. 
that is when you can tell because then because you have to sometimes choose the word every word and you're thinking about it and it's better to do it in the in the office you choose what word you know should it be shall or may or whatever you know because you have you have to pin pin the witness down yes that's right so you don't forget the whole idea of the whole idea of cross examination is to elicit as much information from the witness that is favorable to your case and injures your opponent harms it so Uh, you know, basically, you've got to be tight. But you, you, I have done it long enough that I often have supplementary questions, which depends on the answer. And then I'm free flowing, and then I go back and go back to my question. So, in other words, there's, there's that that's that sort of fairly detailed structure that's there, but you have to retain that flexibility depending on yeah on the answers that you get from the uh, from the witness. So I, that must mean surely that apart from asking the question. The other thing that's critically important is listening carefully to the answer. Absolutely correct. That's right. So people who work with me will know. I will say, you don't talk to me. Don't disturb me. Don't pull my gown. <laughs> I'm not interested. If you got anything, you write on a piece of paper, which I usually throw out. I chuck it away anyway. <laughs> so practice <laughs> is a solo, and I always say, look, you can always tell talk to me at the break. It's seldom irreparable. Mm. You know, at the break, you talk to me. But sometimes they do pass a piece of paper, and sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes it's not. I don't write down the answer because I know now, of course, it's being recorded. But those days, my juniors will know they have to write down the answers because I'm focused on catching the guy, catching my witness. Okay, just to follow up on that, you're saying you know you don't really like to be interrupted by your juniors passing papers, etc., etc. Do you consider yourself a particularly hard or tough leader when leading a? You should, you know, when doing a particularly complex matter and all that. Oh, I, I think those who work with me know. Yeah, I'm, I'm tough. I have standards, and they have to uh, measure up to my standards. Otherwise, they just don't work with me. So I can be friendly, and I can be interested in sports, and I can be talking nonsense and be playful. But when it comes to the actual work, I'm I'm pretty serious. And they they know we want to win the case, and we, we have to give our 150% best. So you don't mind giving them uh, members of your team the occasional dressing down if you feel oh, yeah. Often, that their standards the are not all right. Okay. All the time, all the time. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I I scold them and then I I forget within five minutes I forgot it. All right, okay, all right. There's no malice or whatever. It's just come on. That's right. That's right. I guess um, Razan pointed this out to me when we were we were discussing speaking to you, um, uh, an interview that you gave uh, to the Edge just after you became uh, Attorney General. Where you described yourself as a hands-on barrister, and um, you also described a particular case that you did that you spent you know, four weeks just preparing for that one case. Um, is that generally, assuming you have a trial that's starting, is that how you do it? That you'll actually allocate a, a specific period of time when you work on that case and nothing else? Oh, absolutely. I mean, four weeks would be for a smaller trial, but for the larger, I mean, the the, the two long, the two long trials we did with with each other, the bonds cases, mm-hmm. I I'm sure that I would have spent two three months because there's wow. just too many, too much documents. There's two vol- volumes, and then what you do is, it, it's very. That's why most people don't like doing it because it's boring and it's laborious and it's painstaking, and it's not sexy, and it's not exciting. So you have to sit in the office, and I I didn't like to bring back work home, so I would sit in the office. And you can only do about six, seven hours a day because it's a bit you know, reading the documents and reading. So you know, you do six hours a day, and then you say, "Okay, I'll carry on tomorrow." Uh, so you are not as efficient as you should, but you're far more you're thorough that way. And then because we keep time sheets, we've been keeping time sheets for a long, long time. 
the clients understand that and then they see you perform in court, uh, then they understand. And I always say even, in, even if it's an application, an OS or a judicial review where it's just submission, uh, I always say the golden rule is if you want to submit for one hour in court, you have to prepare for three, four times that, say four, three, four hours to prepare for one hour. Okay, interesting. Let's move on from uh, from the sort of practical aspects of your, and then really that's very insightful, to your opponents at the bar, judges at the bar that you've come across over the last uh, 44 years. So, and of course, I, I, and so far as opponents are concerned, I'm quite happy for you to name someone who's retired from the bar, uh, as opposed to someone who's still at the bar today. But who was the opponent that you respected the most? Well, I think... I never thought about the opponents. I just thought, have I got a good case? Have we got a good case? And invariably, we would have a good case. Otherwise, I wouldn't go to trial. I wouldn't waste my time. Often, we would tell the clients who walk in, they've got a poor case. Don't waste your time. And uh, we we never, there is a screen education. Don't file silly cases. You must be confident of winning. And for me, winning was very important. I, I'm a competitive person. There's a sporting part of it. You want to win. So, you can only win fairly if you have a, a decent case. If you've got a lousy case, you're not going to win. So you tell the clients, look, you know, you're going to probably lose. And the clients you invariably accept. If they, if they say no, then you will give a short opinion and they, they will uh, accept that. So therefore, most of the cases I had were quite strong cases. We ought to win. So the opponents really didn't matter. You know, it, it, with no due respect, you, they are not in the equation. But what irritates you over the time is, of course, people who, who may misrepresent or mislead or whatever, then you have to correct and all that. That's a bit irritating. But then you're used to it and whatever. Now, insofar as the bench is concerned, I would say, and again, I have high standards. I, I would say Justice Yusufi Abdul Kadeh was the, was the best test. And I always say that. I say, imagine for a minute you are submitting before Yusufi. And of course, now, because Yusufi retired about 1990, 1991, about 30 years ago. So there are thousands of lawyers who never saw him. So it doesn't mean anything. But uh, even in, when I was in chambers for 20 months, I'd always say, look, imagine you are submitting before Yusufi Abdul Qadir. That's the standing because, and the reason is why he's very prepared, high standards. He, ha You have to be thorough and you must be able to answer his questions. Uh, so that was, the, so nobody else comes to that standard. When you say the litmus test was Yusufi Abdul Qadir, uh, what exactly was the, was it about him? I mean, from your own personal experience, do you do you ever get a dressing down from him, or he was asking questions that you were totally you didn't expect? What is it about Yusufi then? No, I think uh, Yusufi just wanted Yusufi started out by saying he was very confident. He, he had an outstanding brain, world class brain, and he was very proud of it. And he he knew he was the cleverest <laughs> person in Malaysia, uh, so he had confidence. So he. You could describe about 5,000 politicians like that, actually. Uh, no. His case, objectively and genuinely. Okay, all right. Uh, sure. So uh, he therefore didn't expect that kind of uh, standard from the bar. All oh, he expected okay. was you must be prepared and you must be thorough. You must know your materials. Uh, when he asks you a question on the law or whatever and you give an answer, he it doesn't have to be what he thought. Whatever answer, he's quite happy. He listens. He's open-minded. He's happy to change. I see. He just wanted you to prepare. Don't come with shoddy preparation. 
because I'm one of those thousands of thousands of lawyers who never had the opportunity to argue before uh, Yusuf Isus groups here. So we do, we can't speak from personal experience. Because, but you hear these names, right? All this being mentioned. So, and the impression you get is Yusufi is this laser tongue judge who doesn't really, you know, suffer fools gladly, you see. And what you, are, what you just told us just now that, you know, Yusufi actually is not this particularly harsh uh, judge that you appear before. Provided you are prepared. If you are not prepared, then he can be merciless. And then sometimes he he really uh, on, he goes over the top and he, bu- and he bullies a poor barrister who didn't prepare. Prepare meaning you got to know where your documents are That's and right. you got to be able to actually factually the un- to deliver the answer. That's right. Yeah. And he will say, where is the statement of claim? Mm. You must be able to point it out in the appeal record, which volume and all. They often he tests you. And I, and I don't know, Tommy, I mean, just reading the, uh, the, his judgments as well, uh, and I don't know whether this comes across in the course of argument, but it appears as if he had, he had a great regard for his scholarship of the law. So did he test lawyers on that as well? Well, that, that's right. Talking about his judgments, and I, I, even, even in the case that I appeared before him, he was one of those law, uh, judges who really did not need submissions. Uh, so oh. counsel really did not assist him <laughs> in drafting those judgments. He drafted it himself. So, you know, so basically, he could have already had an idea of what his judgment is going to be or after that. And he, and he wrote judgments very, very fast, four, five days, one week, two weeks. So he would be one of those who can honestly say, I had very little assistance from counsel. Then secondly, he had this great thing of, that's that the show-off part of Yusofi. Uh-huh. Uh, and I got to know him well and would tease him on that. He loved to have the London Times. He would get the London Times delivered. So maybe one week later, then, uh, so say uh, Monday's London Times would arrive on, on his desk the following Monday. And nobody else has it. Nobody else cares in Kuala Lumpur and Malaysia. And of course, Times has this law report. Yes, right, right. And he will always say, have you read this? Have you read? And some lawyers, and, I, and <laughs> he asked me once or twice, I said, I'll say, I'll, I'll say, no, my Lord, I don't. I don't subscribe to it. And I never like the Times anyway. I'm a guardian person. He's, and <laughs> crack a joke like that, then he me alone. You know, so he liked to... And how did you get to know him? How did you get to know him personally? He liked to uh, be absolutely up to date. So he would say, I just read the House of Lords on Monday and this is what they decided. And nobody else in the world has heard, heard of it. You know? How did I get to I got into the, to the tribunal. I wasn't particularly close to him, but he asked, he, telef- he's, he uh, telephoned, his secretary telephoned me and asked me to go and see him after he was uh, suspended. And uh, he was among the five judges who were suspended in 1988, July or August. And I was in screen in straight trading building and they were in Sultan Abdul Samad. So he, tell, he said, I want to see you. Can you come now? I said, yeah, sure. And I was outside his office in two minutes. He was shocked I was there in two minutes. And then he wanted me, wanted me to act for him in the tribunal case. So I said, well, thank you very much, but I cannot because I'll be acting for Saleh Abbas. And we decided in the Saleh Abbas team, which was, which was led by Raja Aziz, that none of us would act for the five judges. Because if we did, they would say, ah, this is a collusion, perception of being. So none of the Raja Aziz team acted for the five judges. And then I got to know you. Right. Let me, let me ask you about Raja Aziz, because I mean, you know, for people who are uh, listening to this uh, outside Malaysia, he was a, a giant, absolute giant at the, at the Malaysian bar. But what were your experiences with him like? Oh, he's a wonderful man, wonderful, warm, generous, uh, because he acted for me. 
And then, of course, uh, in my personal capacity, and then we, we were together in the bar council. He was a bar chairman, bar president three times. I think every time the bar was in crisis, they turned to Rajazis for leadership. Very quiet, unassuming. And then great company, wonderful sense of humor. And then most importantly, nowadays, love the beer. We can go to have a beer and, uh, in Lake Club. And, uh, you know, wonderful. We, we sorely miss, miss him. Great, great, great person. Moving on from there, I mean, uh, very nicely, I think, dovetails into the next area I want to touch on, which is the 90s. And you said, that, of course, Raja has acted for you at, at one point in time. Now, we had a royal commission in Malaysia in after 2008. Uh, Razlan, I think, was part of the team that, that, that acted in it, which, you know, I think uncloaked a lot of what was happening in the judiciary during the, the 90s. You were, to a large extent, at, at the tip of that spear. Uh, you acted in a lot of cases that um, were very controversial at that time, uh, at a time when uh, the, the judiciary was uh, was very much in, in question. What was that like? Oh, quite tough. I think the, the starting point was uh, because we were acting for Saleh, uh, Hamid Omar was very angry with us. Hamid Omar became Lord President, uh, Chief Justice. And then uh, Hamid Omar, so I had a tough time appearing before him. And then he was followed by Yusuf Chin who was also very tough. So my difficulties before them uh, arose from the fact that I had acted for Saleh Abbas and this was payback time for uh, the two chief justices. So yeah, it, it was quite tough. Uh, clients uh, lost a lot of briefs, but you know, but I was in screen and we plowed through. Uh, the judges were difficult. And then, I mean, what they do is uh, you, uh, you end up losing most cases and you say, are you kidding? You know, case that you should win. And then they spread the word. And unfortunately, the bar is pretty competitive all over the world, the bar is always very jealous, very envious, <laughs> all over, very competitive. So they're quite happy to see somebody else who's a rival not doing well. So yeah, it's just tough. When you say the judges were tough, right? People like Saleh uh, Hamid Omar, you said. So I got two questions there. Number one, before the 88 crisis and after the 88 crisis, was it was basically the, the treatment you experienced in court appearing before them actually different? Absolutely. Because uh, one of the good things uh, from from 1976 when I started, and I was the High Court by say 78, 79. So let's say so 10 years before 88, it was fantastic. All the judges were really nice, and I guess they were quite they were nice to me. I had no I had no problems with any judges because I, I they all appreciated that I was very, I was I was very young, uh, young barrister, and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were much older than me, so they gave me the benefit of here's a young lawyer, and I was always prepared. And so they, they liked me. I had a wonderful hearing. But it doesn't matter whether one law, one won or one lost. But I had a wonderful, I had no, there was no judge that I had problems with. But after 88, it was marked. Then there's team A, team A, team B. How did they treat you? Oh, well, first of all, a lot of the cases we lost. We lost with this law. But so apart from the fact that you lost, was the treatment different in court? Were they rude to you? Well, I mean, some did, some did not. Uh, but I was always... Uh, smiling and pretended as if it's water on ducks back. They would try and provoke and I smile and I don't respond. And uh, that way do, and, uh, don't fall for the digression and stick to my case. And, and then unfortunately you lose. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, let me just explore uh, that a little bit more, uh, Tommy, because from what you're saying, I mean, obviously there became, uh, you, you're saying there was a team A and a team B. And that necessarily, I think, must mean that one team exerted more influence in court than the other. Do you see that as having continued in Malaysia? 
that certain lawyers exert more influence. I'm not saying it's it's wrong in a, in a, in a sort of in a wrong way. So I, I think there are two parts to your question. If I can answer it, two parts. In so far as the judges are concerned, I think Hamid Omar and Yusuf Chin played favourites because don't forget they are coming back after the tribunals and two tribunals and they had favourites of they may have ten favourite judges and ten judges whom they didn't like, which is Team B at the judiciary level. But I think all that changed probably by the time uh, Hamid and Zaki became chief justices. They were just much more unified at the bench. So now you don't hear of team A, team B, team C among the bench. And I don't know whether you, you all will agree with that. Now They all seem to be pretty united. That's at the, the bench level. Uh, at the bar level, yes, I think uh, in every country... Uh, familiarity is important. So the leading barristers in Melbourne or Singapore or Toronto or London who frequently appear before the judges and who are who are prepared, well-regarded, they could be double or triple booked. Now, during that, that diff- these difficult times in the, in the 90s, you were also a, a litigant in a, in a series of, of uh, libel actions that were, that were, that were brought. So my first question to you is, what were you like as a client? <laughs> Terrible. Uh, I mean, I, because my, actually my, my, my lawyers were, I had Charles Gray, who was a good, a good leading defamation QC. The bar appointed him. I was bar council secretary when I made those statements. And I took the position as soon as the bar council secretary. Uh, and then I had Raja Aziz. And the, so they were a bit more confident. I was more cynical. I was saying, no, this is a political uh, suit. Are you kidding? We are going to lose. We are going to lose. But I want to fight it in court. I'm happy to be cross-examined. I will have the benefit of absolute privilege in the witness stand. I can hammer them and say what. They can't do anything to me. I'm a party. I'm a witness. That's right. (laughs) I can go to town. But that opportunity was denied because they settled the case. And just to remind remind them, there were five defamation suits asking for a total of $300 which was, of course, settled and we didn't have to pay 10 cents. The insurers paid. Right, right. Which was followed quickly by a contempt of court and a six-month jail sentence. And that's all those were. Well, let me ask you about that. I mean, you, until that point, uh, your role is as an advocate. And suddenly, you're, you're now a defendant. As you say, you're facing 300 million ringgit worth of uh, claims. And then uh, you actually were sentenced six months in jail in the, in the high court. Did you learn anything about that? that informed you as an advocate moving on afterwards? I mean, did you, did the, the process you went through as litigant, did it affect you as an advocate no. after that? No, no. I was quite cool about the whole thing. Because I, I, I everybody else was troubled. So every, the bad thing about it was you can't go anywhere and care. It's a small place. You go wherever they would be asking you about it. Oh, I heard about the suit. I heard about this. A lot of them are well-meaning and well-intended. When I really didn't want it, I don't want to know about it. To me, it's under control. The insurers are going to pay. I got good lawyers and see you in court. I meant it more in, the, in this sense that, you know, I mean, at the time when you'd been sentenced to, you know, for six months and your life was in the hands of the judiciary. And how did that make you feel in that environment that existed at that time? No, but I, ca- I carried on my practice. Of course, the work shrunk a bit more because clients are, but there were enough clients. And to be fair, uh, most of the, uh, judges were not, uh, they didn't take that into account. Or they, We were all acting. 
and I acted as if there was nothing, and the judges acted, and my opponents acted, and so <laughs> you know it was as if it didn't exist. Tommy, we should try and move. Uh, I want to move very quickly onto the, the 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 next part of your career and setting up. You set up. You left screen and set up a, a boutique sort of uh, barristers uh, chambers. Did that present you with a different set of of challenges uh, in terms of your career compared with being sort of in a big firm and screen like screen? Not really. It was quite seamless, surprisingly. And I think that some of my friends said you should move out if you minded to move out, and I moved out. And very quickly, a few clients continued to support us, including Danaharta actually, including Danaharta mm. and Bangalore, two establishment institutions. And the good thing was, I we continued to get a lot of plaintiffs' work, which was very unusual because by so we were a small firm. Our firm was three lawyers in two thousand, and most small firms acted for defendants. As a general statement in civil matters, we were one of the few, and we continued. And in fact, again in my career in the small office that I call One O One, for the twenty years, uh, I, we still maintain the ninety percent plaintiff's work. That was a blessing. So yeah, it was, it was much easier than we thought. So that was very boutique in terms of just doing uh, a really advocacy. Yes. Uh, in that sense, Malaysia is a fused profession. Yes. Do you think we should be a fused profession? I think. It's not so important because it's funny because in the UK and other countries which went divided, they they are talking about getting a bit more fused. So I think it's not an if the law has one hundred problems, uh, this is not one of those. It's not priority. And anyway, a lot of lawyers by among our twenty thousand, like the two of you, for example, I know and myself, you, we have opted to, to specialize. So it's not a, a big problem. Okay, now we turn now to your twenty months as um, attorney uh, general. You were practicing commercial lawyer all your life. What was the biggest challenge you faced becoming attorney general? Well, actually, I, I didn't think there were that many challenges. I was there. I went there with a set goals. There were three goals which I told the press from day one, and remained the, trying to deal with one MDB matters, civil and criminal. Uh, trying to deal with lopsided contracts that Malaysia was. Entrusted with or stuck with, and then try to do law reform and new laws. And I tried to do that every day, and uh, I enjoyed it. I was I tried to make as many decisions as possible, and yeah, I enjoyed it. And I really didn't face that many challenges. What was your typical days, AG? Because we know you also were in court for the one MDB matters, but then you are also, of course, looking at these lopsided commercial contracts. You were also looking at the you said you know law reform. So what you were in court, and then you came back to chambers. What's a what's a typical day like? I went to court. I think I think by the time the trial started, I'm trying to remember. It's probably November, December. Oh no, I think it was February of the following year. Right. The actual trial of SRC, which I was involved in. So the first six months. So if you take the first six months, which will be that's right, June to December 2018, very little court appearances. I would go to office, be there by about. 8.30, 8.15, 8.30, and then stayed there till about 6. Attend a few meetings. And of course, I didn't particularly enjoy meetings, but if, I, if, I, if I'm chairing the meeting, I can try and make it short. And, you know, but if I'm not chairing, then, you know, which, and of course, if you go for uh, uh, meetings outside the AG's office, go to some ministry and whatever, you know, others are chairing. So me, I had to attend meetings. Uh, invariably, there'll be about a, a meeting once in two days. There'll be some meeting. So about three or four a week. And then, of course, otherwise, I'm just sitting in the office and making decisions and reading. 
and then people will come and one to one and they ask for advice or whatever and I make decisions a lot of it is paperwork is it similar to to basically your position when you were in your firm then as the head of uh, well no I, I think the, the great privilege of being the AG was that when we are in the bar we are advisors we advise the client the client makes the decision right don't forget except of course once we're in court the, the operational decisions are yours but big big decisions whether to appeal yes. whether to file the writ you know because we are client spokesman we are agents but uh, as ag i was essentially the decision maker uh, because the gov- the prime minister trusted me the government the cabinet trusted me the civil servants trusted me so uh, you were both a lawyer in court performing the normal barrister's role but more importantly the decision maker and that i enjoyed because i i was always very decisive I, for me oh, making okay. decisions is, right. for me making decisions is fun i'm happy to okay. make decisions right. fine that was my next question but fine enough you answered it <laughs> i always say i, I make decisions I, i if i made 100 decisions 20 or 30 may be wrong but i'm happy to say it is my mistakes i tried it honestly but i'm sorry i made mistakes but that's it but i make decisions Okay, let me ask you this question. You were there for 20 months and I know one of the as you said one of your priorities was law reform. You resigned as Attorney General in uh, in uh, February of 2020 just after the uh, a change in government. What would you say you feel you left undone when you left? Oh, I think quite a bit because uh, I I we, I didn't expect to resign and I didn't expect the prime minister uh, to resign and the government to fall. So I guess if, uh, litigation is everything uh, is slow as you know and so for example the SRC trial which is the first of the trials the SRC Najib 42 million that is still going on you know I think the submissions are in June July I'm not sure with the covid and then of course there'll be reserve judgment and by the time the judgment comes out in the high court and all, and then about 20 25 other cases so I am afraid everything is in midstream because of that litigation in Malaysia compounded by covid plenty of things are left hanging in the air right but what about the the sort of law reform side was there was there any any particular thing that you wanted to get done that you were not able to because of of the of the time let's look at the successes i think we've got the the great constitutional amendment which is unanimous probably for the first time since madeka uh, where the, the 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 youth minister said sadik must get credit where he single handedly went and charmed all the op- then opposition and he unanimously supported the voting age to be reduced to 18 years you know 21 to 18 and uh, you don't have to take steps to register so that is a great move you know and i think not much credit has been given so that's a constitutional amendment and then the prime minister tun mahate finally agreed with my recommendation to have a limit of two terms for the prime minister the 10 year limit two terms and we had already prepared the bill and he was going to uh, present it in june And so at that we were hoping to get a two-thirds majority unit so so those are two constitutional amendments then the law acts of parliament there were a few but i think not enough and i think that's because the cabinet uh, was not um, pushing it sufficiently because i i quickly discovered that law making a bill presentation and moving it in the parliament is the prerogative of the executive branch so the government really the, in particular the cabinet decides what bills to push you know, and we are secondary they tell us we want this we want that so i told all the ministers the moment you want any law you tell us and we will do it and my and the parliamentary draftsmen were excellent they all worked very very fast 
and I had a good relationship. They would come and tell me they'd take one week to do the the bill. So I said, why one week, three days, two days? We negotiate and they <laughs> okay. bring it in two days. Three days. <laughs> All right. Uh, so they were very good. They were excellent. Yeah. Right. Let me ask you this about, about your time as, as Attorney General as well. You were interested in politics if, you know, from the time you were a, a student. Did your in, in your role as AG, did you learn something about politics that you didn't otherwise know? Or the political process? I think, I think it's much worse than I thought. <laughs> politicians, uh, I think politicians are different and they have their own code. So, but I must tell you that I was very, very clear about this, that uh, in the 20 months I was there, I was very conscious of my role as a lawyer to the government and no other role. So I hardly talked politics in the sense, although a lot of the ministers were friends from the past, you know, some of them for the bar, but I, I hardly talked politics with them. You know, it was just quite very professional. Okay. I just got a couple of questions. Uh, actually, this is in relation to some of your articles that was collated into Abuse of Power, your book that was published in 2016. And one of them uh, was uh, very interestingly published 26 years ago about anti-hopping laws, which I suppose now is the regime to, uh, today in our country, as, considering what has, hap has happened. In 1994, actually, you presented a paper at a conference on people's representatives in Kathmandu, Nepal, as representative of the Malaysian Bar. Uh, this was a conference organized uh, jointly by Law Asia and the University of Melbourne. And in that paper, you basically concluded, because of Article 10 of our federal constitution and because of the case of Nordin Saleh and all that, at the end of the day, Defections is a political matter and has to be resolved by political means at the political level. You also said that the electorate should make it known its views on the matters. If members of the electorate are sufficiently concerned about defections, they should vote against candidates whom they think are participating in the game of defections. And then you said basically the Malaysian, you suggested that the Malaysian electorate just has the politicians and the government it deserves. And that was in 1994. Fast forward 2020 today, your stint as Attorney General, as you know, was cut short because of anti-hopping. Do you still stand by your views then? That at the end of the day, this is a, your phrase was the answer lies in politics, not so much law. Could we actually amend the constitution vis-a-vis -vis Article 10? No, I, I've changed my mind. Right. Uh, even in, if I remember, even in my article, mm -hmm. which was discussing Nodin Saleh, uh, Nodin Saleh followed the law in India in some states and whatever. And a lot of the judgments in the Indian states were saying it depends how serious the problem becomes. Okay. And so some states in India changed it and some didn't. And even at the national level, they, they keep having this debate. So in Malaysia, I think the, the most recent example shows what a fast people's mandate is. Mm -hmm. So exactly. when it has when it has such extreme consequences of government falling and falling or now governments falling, which betray the trust of the people, as opposed to one or two individuals hopping, uh, I think uh, I've changed my mind, and I think they must amend the constitution, and they must uh, it must be one of those bills which must and the minister who presents the bill must uh, uh, give reasons explicitly as to why uh, Malaysia is going down this road now, 67 years or 61 years after Madeka, 
and to distinguish Nodin Saleh and whatever, so that the express intention of Parliament is in the bill and in the speech. Because you can, you can, you will, you can bet your bottom dollar. The moment it becomes law, it will its constitutionality will be challenged, because somebody is going to say, "Hey, Nodin Saleh said you can't mm-hmm. do this." That's right. Uh, so then, those who are defending the law will say, "Absolutely," because this is the Parliament trying to overrule Nodin Saleh for these reasons, uh, and then let the court decide the constitutionality. Well, when you were Attorney General. Was there any discussions pertaining to anti-hopping laws or no? Absolutely, the problem didn't arise. There were other other constitutional issues. There were they were they, they were talking about separating the office of the AG and the DPP. Uh, that was to be considered, and then there were one or two others. I whom I can't remember for us straight away. But the uh, Prime Minister, what, what are your views on that? The separation of the well, oh, they should separate. They should separate. Yeah, they should separate. No doubt in my mind. I think now the officers have uh, done a referendum in chambers, and uh, they also, I think, support it, provided it's, you know, there are, there's a mechanism. Uh, so I think the blanket no of chambers, I think, has uh, modified a bit. They're right. open to it. Uh, and I think they are quite happy to have uh, DPP, who is separate from an AG, two, two separate officers. I think, yeah. You said there was some sort of informal referendum in chambers. So that means when you were in chambers, did you actually lead discussions on this, on the separation of... Uh, no, no, I didn't. I didn't. Okay. I didn't. It was done by the Solicitor Generals and all that. Uh, oh, I see. They knew, they knew my views, and uh, we just to separate, and the government was good. So, but I think it's one of those the government would have probably done in year four or year five mm-hmm. of the five-year mandate because you know, they, the, it wasn't so pressing for them. Oh, yes, of course. I got that impression from. I brought it up with the, to the, with the prime minister once or twice. Basically, the, the, the signal was later, a bit later. Uh, may I ask, as the attorney general, and you've gone on record, basically you saying your position is reason why you resigned, of course, is because you were attorney general appointed by the Pakatan Harapan government. How how often do you meet the prime minister when you were EG? Was it a set schedule or, or was it of, once in a couple of weeks when when he wants to see me, he calls for me, or when I want to see him to report. Once in three, four weeks. Right. Yeah. It's just a final question for me, actually. Nothing to do with the book. This you were talking about the judiciary just now. I just, I was just wondering in your career, would you ever sounded out to be a member of the judiciary? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and by your answer, I presume you were not interested, even if you were. So. Uh, no, they are two separate things. Right. First, I was never asked, and, uh, okay. and that's not surprising because by. They knew I was too individualistic and whatever. But I never liked to be a judge or an arbitrator uh, because I, at the end of the day, I, I, the truth is I don't have the patience to listen. Uh, and that's not fair. You, you, uh, the most important requirement for a judge or an arbitrator is to listen. You must have the temperament to listen to plaintiff, defendant and sit there quietly and whatever. I don't have it and I would interrupt very quickly and that, that's not right. As a barrister, as I said, barristers want the court to listen. And I can't. I can't listen. I'm, I'm much better. I'm, I'm much better as a decider. Right. 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 Just to close off, then, uh, Tommy. What are the future? What are your plans now? Or oh, do nothing. I'm quite lazy. I'm enjoying doing nothing. I didn't realize. I didn't realize uh, how lazy I become. Uh, but I was. I also started on my memoirs, so I've been okay. Writing oh, my memoirs. okay. Ah, okay. We look forward. To that. That's, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's going to be interesting reading. Anyway, thank you very much, Tommy Thomas, for being with us um, today. That's been a really, really interesting interview. Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it.
Thank you. Thank you for listening to that first episode of Advocates. While we spent the lockdown recording the series, Tommy spent it writing his book, Justice in the Wilderness. It is his account of his 45-year legal career in Malaysia, and it is due to be published in December. It will, of course, describe his period as Attorney General and those difficult decisions he had to make in charging an ex-Prime Minister of Malaysia. Do tune in to our next episode of Advocates. You can find out details of Tommy's book and the next episode on our website and all our other social media platforms. Listen to the voices of the advocate.